Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Welcome in, everyone, to the S2 Cognition Podcast. This episode and the following one are going to feel a tad different than our past ones. They were designed to be a part of our training and playbook material, and they still will be. However, the content is just too rich, and both quarterback coaches, Dub Maddox and Will Hewlett, who are each joining us for a second time, have such a great ability to translate these processes in the quarterback development space. So, if you're a coach looking to help your quarterback develop and understand the practicality of training these processes on the field, these next two episodes are for you. This episode and the following one will both be in this format. Coach Dub and Coach Will talking ball and drill concepts with the two co-founders of S2, Brandon Alley and Scott Wiley. For those that are new here, welcome. We're excited to have you today. And those that are returning listeners, we always appreciate your support for another episode. To help us continue our growth, we ask that you subscribe, rate, and review our show. Enjoy these next two episodes. Welcome. We are just going to talk quarterback visuals. And one of the reasons why Scott and I wanted to do this is it's one of the most enjoyable aspects of what we do is talking to you guys and really understanding and translating science to on the field. And one of the problems with that becomes that as scientists, we have difficulty when we lead the conversation, understanding complex football like you guys do. And then on the other side of that, you guys leave us and then the science kind of fades away. And so this is where the meaningful stuff happens. So we figure that we would just get some of this on video and it would be really helpful for all of everybody involved, uh, especially understanding quarterback play. Uh, we view you two guys as the biggest uh, developmental quarterback coaches there are. So we, we enjoy working with you guys. For this first one, we're going to go through the quarterback visuals, right? And uh, I don't want anybody to feel obligated to, to you know, sort of think everything S2 or think through sort of cognitive. I just want this to be a free flow idea of what you guys see from this perspective, uh, how you uh, uh, pick it up in your athletes and maybe how you work on it. Um, but I want to try to keep it to the framework of, hey, we're going to go through the three visual processes. I'll try to manage time uh, so we don't get too far off, but we can go as deep or as shallow as you guys want. The first visual process that we always talk about, and, and I know that uh, we've gotten deep into that on a podcast recently, is perception speed. Um, and this is really looking at quarterbacks, how quickly quarterbacks can process visual information. And what does that mean for a quarterback? Scott and I have always viewed that as, you know, being able to see very tight passing windows where, you know, as you elevate in the levels of play, obviously passing windows or open windows or get smaller and smaller. From your end, what do you guys see about, you know, sort of just processing speed, the sheer, the sheer speed at which a, a quarterback can process what they see visually i think for me some some things that that i see is one quarterbacks not knowing what to look for and so you have to establish frames of reference for those key movements or indicators that reveal the defensive backs or defenders intent so so i think that's the first thing we try to lay out with our quarterbacks is is a verbal and visual frames of reference of what those um, indicators mean. So, I mean, you start with, it's all the explicit information first. You've got to try to download into your quarterback and then, and then you got to filter that out into an implicit process that can 
operate within those sub-second environments they live in. So, you know, when you talk about perception speed, for me, the analogy that I got from you guys, it was like, you know, how fast does that Polaroid develop? And I think that is not the same for all kids. So, you know, we try to do different drills and the real, you know, standard, just start with one single defender movement. But I try to put my guys through, you know, simple things to help me evaluate just how fast does that picture develop for them. And then I work backwards um, with with kind of that, you know, as I talked about at the beginning of the question to uh, bring them up to a faster development speed. So it's more of a progression to where you're Correct. working very single singular information, uh, speeding that information up, that information processing up, and then you may add more complexity to it. Yes. And I think the thing that, you know, that I found, you know, and this was also, you know, uh, you know, cementing for me heavier when after talking to you guys was just, you know, you have to drill this stuff at game speed. So I think, you know, before when I would drill, you know, if not necessarily be, it wouldn't be as realistic as, you know, you have to put some sort of pressure element and have to force them to operate under that realistic clock. And so I think if you're not, you know, operating in the time constraints that the real game you know, operates within, then you're you're not going to get an accurate revelation of of your quarterback's actual perception speed ability. I think Dub, you captured something that's really important. So athletes' brains differ in how fast they can process visual cues at the point of focus. That's what we're talking about with perception speed. You've got to know what those cues are first. And and if you're a slow to develop processor, then you absolutely have to know where to land your eyes, where to focus your attention to read the right cues, because that's the only chance you have to jumpstart the process. And and what I've always liked about how you describe your, your drills with quarterbacks is you're giving them those cues. You're telling them what to look at, you know, the hips, the, the positioning of the, of the feet, uh, which direction they're, they're turned toward. So those visual cues from a processing speed or a perception speed perspective are so critical to know what they are. And then you, cause you got to lock onto those and then start processing what they are so you can recognize them. Yeah. I think what we did is we developed some frameworks. I think that the, there's, you know, there's several different layers your quarterback has to work through um, within a play. And, you know, one of them is just simply recognizing where the optimal space advantages are in relation to the scheme of the play and then they've got to lock on visually and understand the defender cues or what I call the cap cues um, that can eliminate that space with post-snap movement. So there's really like two big layers. So we've tried to create some ways, some simple mental heuristics and frames of reference to cut through all of the different ways your eyes can scan and the different um, ways you can get confused and lose that signal through the noise. And so I think we've, we've developed a, a pretty good operating system with our quarterbacks to quickly find where the man advantage, that's a big you know word you'll hear in the defensive world, where the man advantage is in our favor, where it's neutral and where the best space is. We're, we're able to extract that really quickly with, with the system we use. And then also, um, the language and the process of reading the cap um, would be the the second layer of that, you know, and that's where really where the Polaroid picture develops, you know, how fast can I identify um, and confirm if that space is available or, you know, and, and I think this is the biggest thing that I didn't understand until after talking to you guys, like the faster I can confirm of that first decision-making point, whether it's a route uh, or whatever, that it's covered, 
the quicker I can buy time and space to find space advantage elsewhere within the play. So, so I think that's a big thing that I think coaches miss often is like the quicker you can get your quarterback to anticipate or confirm the initial decision is a no-go or no-throw, then the more time you buy elsewhere to find optimal space within that sub-second environment. Yeah, from a from a developmental standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, um, when we're thinking through how this develops or how, how you can develop athletes this way, and 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 again, we always talk about this when we're on the calls is about you know wasted reps and 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 using reps to your advantage, but it takes a while to develop those mental representations of what you're looking at, right? And and that's something that has to be practiced. It's not just going to be seeing it once or twice. If you're looking for specific cues in hips and movement, especially movement, that has to be laid down several times, just repping and repping and repping, even if you don't consider your guy a rep guy. It's still neat. That's how the mental representation uh, forms. And Scott loves to talk about these templates, right? And so the only way to form that template is to go through the process of repping and repping and repping, and they will be faster to recognize based on the strength of that template. Is there an average estimation time uh, that it takes for kind of a, a athlete to rewire his brain to uh, change those abilities? I mean, I know it's probably gonna be predicated on the person, but I mean, just for the coach, is there a, a you know kind of a standard window of, of that it takes to get them to change that neuroplasticity? I think that's the yeah. word. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, just from what we would sort of, what we've seen in, in other sports, as an example, in baseball, I think some of this can take about six weeks to really sort of cement itself and develop. But you've got to also put that in the context of, um, say, the, the age and experience of the athlete. So if you're asking them to sort of unlearn habits, um, there's that process, right? That we've got to sort of change versus if you take a young athlete and they're, they're sort of a blank slate, that learning can occur much faster, not only because they're younger, but because they're not having to overwrite things that have already, that are already there from a, you know, from a visual memory standpoint, right? Some of those things become solidified, but to change the sort of framework of that, it's going to take, it'll take a little bit of time. The frame of reference we always use is six weeks because we've, we've actually seen performance move. We've seen the needle move in performance. That doesn't mean that um, it can occur earlier, but we always want to talk about not just does it occur, but the strength of it. And so it's going to be somewhat of a curve. So if you learn new information and you only learn it a limited amount of time, you're going to lose that information faster Versus if you learn it continuously over a long period of time, it's going to be, remain more sturdy. Does that make sense? Yes, that's helpful. You know, that I would add one thing to that. That six weeks is not just six weeks of just looking at the same visual cue, the cap cue. Um, this is in the beginning, you isolate that cue and you study it and you see it and you drop back and you, you look at it and you read it. But you've got to start to systematically into introduce that cue into a more dynamic environment. That's how you create that stickiness. Because if you always just practice the visual representation in an isolated, easy to recognize environment, when you throw that quarterback out into chaos, that's going to be harder to 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 process that and to deal with that and to recognize that in a in a more automatic way. Because your attention is being captured by the 
collapsing pocket and the movements aren't the same. And those visual cues, right? There's, it's not that the hips are turned to the same degree angle every time. There's a little bit of variation there. And so your visual cues have to be sensitive to the normal range of variability. And, you know, there's some, probably some gray areas in there where, gosh, was, was the hip rotated enough? Was it not? Those things have to be studied and part of this, this process over six weeks where you're, you start very controlled and then you become a little more dynamic, more game-like. You got different motion, different movement so that those representations are able to be stable even when stuff around you is a little more chaotic. I think um, if I come at this from maybe the the training standpoint, you know, um, some of the interesting observations that I've had, especially just this past off, off season, but I like to think of it essentially um, when we think about adults and how we are you know how we drive a car um, on a highway at 75 miles an hour um, completely managing kids distractions um, all kinds of craziness going on there's nothing I'm thinking about I'm just processing um, and and uh, you know my dad was a race car driver um, so he did it at an even higher speed right and and so there's things that I remember learning to drive as a kid with someone else in the car you know, and it's like, look out for this, stop here, this car's coming here. And it wasn't until that person got out of the, the seat and then I got to drive by myself that I could kind of test the limits a little bit. But I really felt like I learned to drive. I guess where I'm going with this is I think there's an importance of, of the structure and laying out those foundations and, and those cues. And I think there's also another element, you know, this would also be a good argument for multi-sports. Um, you know, the, the cognitive uh, processes in um, a bad backyard seven on seven game. Um, I think, you know, the, the ability for an athlete to, to self-discover, um, it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the quarterbacks I work with at the beginning of the seven on seven club season, um, you can always see the first couple games are, you know, uh, a little bit inconsistent, but as, as the season goes on, it becomes very, very easy. Um, and, and seven on seven is chaotic by nature in terms of the structure compared to football, um, you know, people don't play by the rules, I guess you say, but I think there's, there's definitely an element, I think to create perception speed and, and, um, help these athletes kind of self-discover some things in some very, uh, free play environments, I think help, help, um, immensely. Then you combine that with the structure, um, of a proper offensive system and, and an approach. And I think you kind of, you know, you put it on steroids for some of these guys, they, they really, uh, they, they really, you know, have some light bulb moments, so to say, so to speak. Yeah, so we'll uh, piggybacking off that your race car analogy again. I've never driven a race car, but one of the things that I always tell my guys and or tell coaches in clinics is is you've got to you've got to get your quarterback to to it. It's like driving a race car, you know, playing quarterback and going going through a chaotic play and finding the open guy. You sometimes you've got to wreck that car into the yeah. wall to learn, you know, just how to handle it properly. And I think one of the drills I got from you a few years ago where you you were talking about just like, hey, you know, we're training, we're throwing the seam. And, you know, there's all different kinds of defender movements you were putting against that quarterback. And you can speak to that drill, but it's like, I want you to, you're throwing the seam no matter right. what, you know, and and, and you, I'll, I'll let you take it from here, but maybe, maybe explain that drill to, to the viewers. That's that wrecking that car analogy. I think one of the interesting things is with quarterback development, and, and it's just the nature of, of, uh, football coaches, um, we're so afraid of 
of turning the ball over. Um, and, and so, which we should be, right? Like, I totally get it. Um, it matters. But the problem with quarterbacks in, in practice, there's, you, you know, creating um, a scenario where they can test their limitations and find their, their point where it's like, okay, okay, I can't make this throw anymore. And so, you know, I, I worked on a drill basically where um, there's just two very close together seam routes and um, the, 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 the quarterback was forced to, to throw it no matter what, like, you know, uh, pick one or the other and we move it closer, you know, change the, the angle of the receiver, uh, sorry, the defender, um, constantly increasing the, the difficulty of it. And so they finally reach a point where it's like, you know, they're going to throw a ball and it's going to be defended. Um, but it's like, you want to give them that permission to, to dig into how far they can really go. And I think once you, once you figure that out, it's like, that helps them now move cleaner through a progression. You know, they can see like, okay, I know I can make this throw. It's, I think it also speaks to a little bit of how guys throw people open, right? Like, uh, you know, Dubs uh, made a living on teaching what exactly open is. And, and I think part of the aspect of that is, is, is finding um, also what, what isn't open. Um, and so going as deep into that as possible, um, giving, giving your, your athlete permission to, to crash the car into the wall, you know, we talk about it in training when a, when a quarterback makes a bad throw on the technical side of things. It's just like, hey, man, we just got to get all the bad throws out of your system. And it's the same same end of it. You know, Peyton Manning led the league in interceptions. Every single interception I threw, I guarantee, was an amazing lesson for him um, that he stacked and stacked and stacked. Um, and so hopefully we can just get those picks out in, in, in practice. Um, that's that's the goal. Yeah. And, we, and we've talked about this before, right? Is most athletes don't know their boundaries about what it is to be super fast or super slow, right? We never teach athletes to be slow, but there are going to be situations where you want them to be patient um, and let things develop a little bit more. And if the athlete doesn't know their boundaries, I think that's one of the most important lessons you can teach a young athlete is to know what it's like to play super fast uh, and know what it's like to, to play as patient as possible so that they can begin to toggle back and forth. But as you point out, you'll never know where your mistakes are, where everything breaks down without allowing failure to happen. I think it's just so important for young quarterbacks. You know, it's interesting to think if you have an athlete with that just takes them longer to process visual information at the point of focus, and you push them to play faster, to make faster decisions, we see this in baseball, right? So you got a hitter who's hitting balls to the back side of the field, the opposite side of the field, and you think it's a timing issue, and so you tell the hitter to swing sooner. But it, the problem is they just need longer to process the pitch, and so they're hitting the ball deeper and later and driving it to the backside of the pitch. You have them speed up and make that decision sooner. You're putting them in a tough position because they're going to be making more decisions based on just partial, partially processed visual information. It's interesting to find that sweet spot for a quarterback, like you were saying, because if you push a, a, an athlete who takes a little bit longer to process visual information too fast, you're actually making it harder for them because they're going to be making more of these quick decisions based on only partially processing what they see, which leads to probably a lot more visual decision mistakes. And so understanding, hey, they need to play a little with a little more patience. We need to give them time to develop these reads. Now, 
you want to go to the fast end of that as much as you can, but understanding that you're going to have quarterbacks who can fly through a read because they just simply process faster versus quarterbacks who may need a little bit more cushion to process. I'm curious kind of how that stacks up with, with what, what you've seen in some quarterbacks who just seem to take a little bit longer. Yeah. So we, we had a quarterback a couple, couple years ago, Scott, where, um, where he like I could see this early in the spring ball where if he was just we're playing like you know two hand open field football two hand tag or tag uh, he was he was always uh, one step late on making a cut uh, you know he he couldn't anticipate you know when to make that cut he was like a step late and I and it always stuck out to me because when we got to decision making on passing plays he was always you know a, a step late into processing if that route was going to be open or not and so. Um, you know, if we could do a cognitive study on him, I'm sure he would show his perception speed score was low. So what we just it, it naturally fell into throughout the season is we had to change protections and give him more time where it was more movement, pocket protections, dash protections, sprint out or or put him under center um, so we could take the the, uh, you know, having to look at the ball coming in your hands on shotgun, you know, takes your eyes for a split second off of your keys. And so by putting him under center and dropping back, he was actually faster. He had more processing time. So that's some adaptive strategies we had to, we, we had to do. Um, and I, I guarantee if he had took an S2 test, he, he would, he would have scored really low on his perception speed. That's very insightful. That's almost uh, counterintuitive to what, because that things happen so fast under center right at the line. But uh, yeah, if you if you're having difficulty processing cues, makes total sense to not be not have to take your eyes off of it. So the next uh, the next one is search search efficiency. You know how quickly you can filter through visual chaos to locate a target, um, and this is one of those things where. You know, obviously, we're very uh, specific on our reads now, and a lot of time you're not actually searching for a receiver. And one of the things we've learned is sometimes you're searching for space, right? Or you know, so that you can throw to space. Um, or if you get turned around because you're scrambling and you have to quickly locate a target, um, it's one of those things where it becomes critical to the way that you see the field. And one of the things that we've learned over time, and, and this is just a quick developmental strategy, I think Jim Zorn told us this, is that, you know, for some for some receivers or some quarterbacks that have difficulty with this, if it's just too chaotic in that area, just move on. Don't try to waste time to look for a guy if it's just cluttered. Just move on. Whereas other guys who are very high processing of targets, um, that's not necessarily the case. So, Will, I know you and I have talked a lot about this. We've actually done some search efficiency drills. So I'd love for you to to give us your insight on what you're seeing out there, what you're noticing. I started when search efficiency became something that I I could take the the term and the definition and go, oh, I think I see that. Um, it was actually watching Kyla Murray play. And I noticed every time he left the pocket um, or scrambled, his like when he decided to throw the ball – like it was always so, it was so rapid, it was so quick, and and um, you know, I, I'm sure he's a guy that scored pretty highly on that. It seemed that it didn't matter what was happening; he could pick up space and throw the receiver the ball effectively, um, you know, with great anticipation in any scenario. Um, so, you know, what what I like to do in in those situations to help athletes kind of continue to work on that is put them in a position where they have constricted vision in terms of they're going to start um, 
the opposite of what Dub is doing for to help the player off in the during the the season by putting them on, uh, under center. I'm going to take it the other direction and and force them to be in a in a situation where they can they have to get their eyes late to the receiver, late to the you know the area they're re- they're reading, um, and and I'm doing this in a in a drill controlled environment um, where there's a little bit of uh, you know layered chaos in there, um, just to help them be exposed to that um, more difficult scenario. And then I, I think, you know, what you start to see is I think from an evaluation standpoint, it's it's you can tell pretty quickly when guys can locate things fast and, and pull the trigger. Um, and then, you know, I think part of coaching is evaluating and then and then uh, maybe adjusting the offense to fit that, you know, in terms of and, and Dub can obviously speak way more to this is, you know, in terms of anchoring the eyes to certain locations on the field to help with those guys with lower search efficiency scores, you know, and there's probably elements where. Guys with high search efficiency, um, you can be maybe a little bit more creative with things um, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, you know, more um, condensed concepts, more complex reads in smaller areas. Um, you know, I think it, but it, it's it's one of those things that we're, we're juggling as a coach. You know, how can we adapt, but how how can we also help them improve and and make sure we find the limitations. Um, yeah, one of the things that we've learned uh, in Dub, I know that you you're a look for open space. You know, the podcast we did with Jeff Woodman, who's an expert in in visual search, is that searching for space is actually a a more difficult task than searching for a target. It actually takes the brain longer, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but it is something that can be trained. And so, how do we? How do you view training? for space? How do you look look for space? What are you teaching your kids to look for um, rather than the target, which I think is still valuable. Both of those the, both of those ways are valuable. And I think it depends on your athlete or your offense. Yeah, I think, well, you know, if it's man coverage, it's a little bit easier to, you know, look at your target. Um, but in zone, it's all about finding the windows and understand the space and time requirements of that receiver coming into here. I, I feel like that's where, you know, I try to teach my quarterbacks to, to essentially focus on those anchor points of the route side space um, within a concept, but feel where that target's coming into your periphery. You know, so try to link, interlink both of those with your central and, and, and peripheral focus. Um, I think in my study of intercepted routes in the NFL over the last five years that the dig route is the most intercepted route in football. And when you watch all the clips, you'll see common patterns show up where quarterbacks are basically, you know, resetting, you know, to a backside dig window and they can't search effectively enough um, of the, the, the cap threats to take those out. So what I, the, the common thing I'm seeing, it's hard because you don't know where their attention is. I mean, I can't like watch film and know like, what is he actually looking at? But from the end zone view, it looks like they are resetting and they're locating the receiver and they have no context or, or idea of where those defenders are in the route side space. So they're, they're looking, they're resetting backside to find the, the receiver and their eyes go blind to the actual guys that are intercepting ball and they never see them. So, um, that's a common drill that any type of concept that we have with a dig route, um, I think in, if I have a quarterback has a low search efficiency, um, then I'm going to try to have him confirm his rhythm side or his, um, you know, they call it um, alert route, whatever, 
whatever you're looking at first, you have to confirm that that is capped or uncapped by, you know, the catch of the ball, maybe the first step of your drop. And so what we try to do is drill them into like, you know, if I hit the first step of my drop and I haven't decided that this is uncapped and I'm resetting backside with my eyes while still staying into my drop to give me more time to search and, and locate those cap threats on the dig. So I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's some things you got to work around if you have a guy who has low search efficiency. Yeah, well, I'll tell you from a scientific perspective, we know, you know, I mean, we we've, we've, we run eye trackers in the lab all the time. If you're searching for your target, your attention cannot expand to peripheral reads or what, what potentially the defender is doing. So if you're searching in a in a specific place or you're looking at your receiver specifically, you're not going to visually process where the defenders are. And so Scott and I always talk about those, uh, those athletes that have the ability to toggle back and forth from focused attention to broadened attention. Now, broadening attention is the next sort of skill set we're going to get to, but that is they're very different. And the best can go back and forth very quickly. So they can focus and then broaden, focus and broaden. But you know from your reading on saccadic eye movements, when you're saccading, you are not attending to anything pretty much. And then when you fixate, everything begins to narrow. It's the times where you actually you try to broaden to see other things. And so if you're attending to that receiver, I know that you have very limited time, but the, but it, it is going to take a split second to be able to re-sort re of jigger for, hey, is there a defender in the area? Where's the defender's movements coming? Um, those are very complex sort of brain processes. Hey, could you speak, Will, to what our conversation the other day about uh, smooth tracking and receiver and the effects you're seeing with ball? I think this is interesting. I found this was really interesting because, again, the crossover between the visual – you know, cognitive side and then the technical side. And um, I started noticing this this uh, technique change that I would see on quarterbacks. And I was listening to, to Dub speak on a podcast uh, or maybe it's a phone call about um, smooth tracking. And essentially, you know, we're following a target. Well, what I would notice for right-handed quarterbacks frequently from receivers moving from the right side to the left side, so whether it's even if that's just a, you know, a bending seam or a, a, a deep dig or something that's crossing, that's coming from the right to the left to slant for a right-handed quarterback, what I started to notice with a lot of uh, QBs is that if they are tracking, and you get this on, on routes on air, and this is one of those arguments probably against the concept of routes on air because of the, um, the lack of context that it provides, um, but... I noticed that quarterbacks, when they track the receiver mid throw, would tend to lose, you know, their spine angle, and they tilt and they chase and they break down mechanically, as opposed to just setting and moving to the space from a different progression point, or setting ahead of the, you know, anchoring their eyes where they're supposed to anchor them on a particular play. So without context, I think one of the negatives of routes on air um, that ties in is. You know, and people talk, it's not, not nothing new. It's like, hey, let's pretend we're working through a progression. But innately, we're just going to find that if there's one guy out there and you're throwing to him, you, most guys are just going to lock their eyes onto that guy and and, and just watch him. Um, but you would see kids literally chase the receiver with their body as they're tracking, as opposed to like, just if we're playing catch to something straight ahead, there's no mechanical change. So 
division aspect of this is not just important from not throwing interceptions. It's also important from creating, uh, you know, uh, good habits uh, from a mechanical standpoint. And it was literally sometimes the fix for my cue if I'm getting a lot of lateral tilt on particular routes, I'm like, hey, just get your eyes ahead of the route when we're working on this throw in a training environment and let it come into your vision. And it's like, you know, it, it fixes the mechanical issue with something cognitive. Scott, this is fascinating, right? Because we talk about smooth pursuit all the time. I think it's a it's a it's a fallacy that we can smooth pursuit things. It's just not how we're wired. And you know, it depends on the proximity of the receiver. We talk about visual degree angle all of the time or visual degrees, but in general, because we're 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 really dig into this in baseball where you cannot smooth pursuit a baseball being thrown faster. If you're at sixty feet six inches, it, it you can't smooth pursuit if it's thrown over 24 miles an hour. So there's some predictive eye movements. And the way we compensate for that it, a lot of times is body alignment, body movement, right? Because we can't smooth pursuit. So the eyes are are always trying to take speed and angle and predict where that moving target will go. And so it's natural for our bodies to adjust to that to compensate for the for the lack of smooth eye movement. Um, and so that, that happens all the time in baseball. If you really look in, dig in, you know, you, you, you don't see hitters actually looking at the point of contact. They're looking out about 12 feet out in front of the plate when they're making contact. And, and that's why. So what you're suggesting will makes a ton of sense. And it also brings up something that you and I sort of talked about recently is how we can use the physical, the biomechanical efficiency as an outcome measure. That if you're working on a specific cognitive process, or you're working on something specific, we can use biomechanics, I think, because it's probably the most reliable, objective measure of performance, because the data aren't going to lie, um, about how much efficiency we lose whenever we're in, engaged in cognitive processing. See it all the time in distraction control. When we start distracting quarterbacks, the first thing we notice is that mechanics go down. Well, now we have a way to quantify it. And so now you can actually quantify when, you're, when your quarterback is tracking a route, how much are they breaking down? And can we, can we move the needle on that and use that biomechanical efficiency as, as your outcome measure? But I, that's the first you and I have talked about this. It makes a ton of sense. And I'm interested in thinking through how we can adaptively change the way a quarterback uses his body in those situations where there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be tracking involved because in, in reality, the tracking piece, not only is tracking your receiver, but you've got to put defenders in context. How much time do I have to, to release before a defender collapses on my receiver? Um, All of those pieces have to fit in there. I've seen this show up heavily in my interception study. There's a ton of interceptions that occur in the league when quarterbacks either are you know, booting out or on the move or getting flushed out of the pocket. And I've seen this with my own quarterbacks over the years of throwing just interceptions to a guy right in front of them when they're scrambling out. And I'm like, I mean, they don't even see him. And I'm assuming, and I think that when you get flushed out, you know, your, your eyes are, you're searching for your target and you see these receivers incorporating scramble drills you don't really know the exact space they're running into but you're so you so you're like you know tracking the movement of that receiver and so you lose the ability to kind of process um, those cap threats and you'll see a lot of interceptions occur in those scramble drill situations 
Brandon, it reminds me of some of those studies we do in, in psychology experiments where you engage attention in a visual scene and the vast majority of people, while they're trying to track or find a target, don't notice somebody in, in a gorilla suit walking behind the scene, across the scene, and they just they have no awareness of that. So it, it kind of reminds me of what Doug was saying. It is such a cognitively demanding uh, an energy demanding process to search and scan, especially when you come out and you're not quite sure where everyone has moved. They've broken off their routes. Uh, defenders have shifted and you're having to scan that, that you might not attend to uh, uh, some of the, the elements of your visual environment in, in the same way, or even recognize that they're there. Yeah. And when the pressure element is on there, I mean, Will, we, I think the the me you and Dub were actually texting during the game whenever there was an interception thrown uh, to a uh, lineman that was standing on the sideline wasn't even in the play it just captured his attention and <laughs> and that was that right there was zero other attention to whatever else was going on um, and th and that's what happens I mean Scott you're exactly right I mean we cannot notice things like that. Um, and that is something we have to practice. It, it, you know, we, you've got to practice in, in, uh, intentionally on being able to shift. Deb, have you ever had any guys that, any quarterbacks that have then done the opposite once they're out of the pocket, like things get easier for them? And they're like, I feel like there's some quarterbacks that almost like thrive in that, that chaos and you, you know, put them in the structure. Um, you know, and it's a little bit more difficult for them. I, I wonder if that's more of like, I mean, and Brandon Scott, maybe speed is that that's more that maybe the improvisation, you know, ability, you know, I mean, you know, you could, you have, you have guys that may have a higher improvisation score or cognitive ability. So they thrive in those kind of environments. Yeah. We talk about this all the time that you try some of these kids that have these profiles with high decision complexity and high improvisation, and low visuals and you try to force them into these schemes and systems that that rely heavily on the visuals and i think the word that we would describe them as playmakers and sometimes you just got to let your kid play i think there's a couple of quarterbacks in the league right now that um, were moderately successful in college and even their first year or two in the NFL. And now they're thriving because I think their coordinators have, have felt okay allowing them to be playmakers. I think you have to know your quarterback, and I think that's, that's, that's exactly right, Will. Um, those kids just thrive on the ability to, to make it happen. Um, and it's not forced into a system that's heavily visually dependent. Or do you think possibly... I mean, let's think of a profile. Let's think of an athlete who has low perception speed. So they're a little slower to process things at the point of focus. So that would be your cap reads. You're sitting in the pocket making those visual reads, but they have incredible search efficiency. I mean, are, is that going to be the athlete who, from a visual processing standpoint, wants to get out and be able to search and find targets versus sitting and making those fast reads. And if you think of the opposite, someone with high perception speed, but low searching, they're going to be the ones that when you get out, that things start to visually feel chaotic for them. But when you get them in the pocket and they can look, scan, make the read, move forward. And Dub kind of alluded to that, that, that low search, that's one of the solutions is getting them to turn their attention sooner. You said that. We've seen that with receivers. 
coming out of a route. Turn your head sooner and start start that search process sooner so you have a better chance of picking up the ball. Um, you said turn your eyes sooner, right, before your body so you can start searching sooner. Give yourself more time. But I wonder if there's differences in the in the visual strengths and weaknesses that might speak to whether they're a quick read person or a get out in the open and, and process. Yeah, so Scott, that's a great point because we have we've got some anecdotal evidence of that working with Jack Marucci at LSU, right? And so allowing an athlete to tell you and even seeing on, you know, the maybe the seven on seven will, the unstructured. How do they thrive? What do they want to do? So Jack just was asked all of their receivers, what routes do you like to run? What are your favorite routes to run? And it tracked heavily with eye dominance. The kids liked running routes that turned them to their dominant eye because they were highly successful at catch rate there. Whenever they struggled with their non-dominant eye, it just didn't feel comfortable to them. So you learn a lot about your athlete asking them, or you know, if, if they don't have a lot of insight, throwing them in this unstructured, unstructured environment and seeing what they do. Because we all compensate, right, Scott? In baseball, we've seen that. Uh, hitters with low perception speed, even when they don't even know they have low perception speed, have compensated as pro athletes. They you know, kick out the, the baseline of the batter's box so that they can get maybe an inch or two extra time. Um, or they become backside hitters. They've compensated because of their own sort of deficiencies. Um, and I think that most athletes, especially as you climb the ladder, do that. So putting them in unstructured environments to find out where they lean to probably tells you something a little bit about their visual strengths. So the next, the, the final one we're gonna, we're gonna chat about today is that broadening your attention. You know, being able to track things in your environment, being able to see the whole field, uh, you know, it's one of those things that we've found at the NFL level is highly predictive of com- completion percentage. Tracking capacity is 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 significantly predictive of completion percentage and likely has to do with what you guys were alluding to earlier, just about how you've got to be able to broaden to see just about a little information about where the defenders are uh, uh, looking for space ahead of a receiver. Um, I know that we've, you know, we've talked, we've had a lot of talk about uh, tracking, but I'd love to hear what you guys, the way you guys are thinking about this more recently. Yeah, for me, it was, it's always interesting. Uh, you know, with the majority of my work is in the, the, the training environment. Um, there was an athlete I was working with recently and uh, we used these plyo balls and I was just watching him and he was like juggling, uh, juggled three balls. And then you could, anyone could kind of do that. And then he's like, I'm going to juggle four and you have to change the technique. And I was like, oh, I wonder what his tracking capacity is because that looked really easy. Um, and I always think of the juggling analogy. Um, but, you know, for, from my understanding with the tracking capacity, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is one of those things where moving the needle on it, it kind of is what it is, right? When we reach a certain point. So um, to me, you know, taking that into account in, in your process as a coach or an evaluator, um, you know, it's, it's probably more important. It, it, I think this could totally impact formationally how you draw things up, you know, um, for example, um, you know, maybe for, uh, in football, you have uh, formations where there's three receivers on one side and one on the other. Um, you know, so if they're in a situation where there's a, a three man concept, that could be more difficult for them to manage 
all the aspects that are going on. So maybe they're, you know, we want to try to focus on more two man concepts with this receiver. Um, and then maybe we adjust the splits, meaning we widen, um, give them more space to work with. So it's not so cluttered. Um, there's probably some legitimacy there too. Um, the success with the uh, Tennessee's offense um, or the, the, the Bryles tree, I guess you could say where, you know, they've, they're using the entire field. It, Probably, I, well, it does. The, the whole point behind the offense is to isolate single receivers and single defenders completely and just have one read. Is that going to work in the NFL? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, I don't think anyone's really tried it. Um, there's probably elements of that in the CFL. Even though they have one extra player, the field is humongous. Um, so, you know, I think from from a coaching standpoint, understanding if someone can't track a lot of stuff, you gotta you got to take that into account in in the type of play calls um and and structuring your offensive around that um and that might explain some things uh, that that you're doing and then but it, it truly could be a limiting factor um you know for for guys that may have more skills and ability yeah we've talked about this tennessee offense a lot uh in this offseason um particularly about the way a quarterback has to process what he has to process uh, i think it limits the need for tracking it limits the need for decision complexity and you especially if you are uh you know focused you have a focused two read or two q read um where you don't have to really broaden your attention i know it looks like because you're you're spread across the field you've got to keep track of a lot of different things but essentially once you get past you know the first line everything becomes much tighter of where you're looking uh, for open. Um, and especially when you got receivers that are lightning quick, um, that, that helps, right? Would you say, um, would, would tracking capacity also be like the ability to track a def or the, I guess, to be able to track the ability of a defender's uh, to close the space, I mean, like their their speed, the 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 rate at which they can close space. I mean, would that be track capacity? Yep, that that's definitely part of it. Uh, we Scott and I don't think we measure exactly that, but essentially, you do have to take account in uh, speed and visual angle to determine when two things may intersect. So we have specific paradigms designed to evaluate coincident timing so when two things will intersect um which is not in the football battery but the the ability to track requires you to have some sort of uh, knowledge of movement and angle and when things will will intersect because that's one of the things that i think that we've done a lot of work on is like for example say say receivers run like a four four yard or four step quick out from the slot position and you have that linebacker that's you know he's under an inside leverage so essentially by his leverage position he's uncapped the out space but you have to be able to track his what i call break rate his ability to break and drive on the route in relation to the break rate of the receiver so being able to match visually with your with your eyes and your just your brain cognitively to know those what are the what's the cushion threshold that that defender can overcome because there's space between you know there's space advantage there but can that defender you know close that space within the, while the ball's in the air and and so i think you know creating drills and creating a framework to teach your quarterback that is something that we've done that it's been really helpful 
Scott, we've we've talked about this before about um, you know the coincident timing piece and how that relates to tracking. Um, what what Dub is saying makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you do have to be able. That is a key component of that tracking task is being able to 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 know when and where things are moving in space, where they're moving, how they're moving, meaning how fast they're moving. I mean, that strikes me as is, and the more of those moving targets you can make those assessments about. I mean, that's a huge advantage if you can see four athletes moving four players moving simultaneously and be able to extract information about the angle where they're moving and how fast they're moving that's a huge advantage if you can only track two then maybe that works for this out route where there's just uh you know two two players involved right the linebacker and the and the slot uh making the out route and so that might be a little easier but what happens when you start you know, you've got that trip set up and now you've got three, six people moving at different speeds, different closing angles. You know, that that's a little more, that's a lot more cognitively demanding. And some brains can handle that and some brains, you, you're going to blow them up. If someone maybe lacks in tracking, but they're, they're, they're strong in perception speed, um, they could make up for their lack of, um, does that make sense? It's like, Hey, this is a three-man concept. You can't track as much, but you're really good at picking it up quickly. They've got really good search efficiency, so maybe they can be, you know, it's like if you can't have all three, at least you have two of them. Um, is that something that, you know, uh, helps out? We can kind of lean on in a situation? Well, I think absolutely. I think, you know, we're talking about these and we measure them in isolation, but nothing in life happens in isolation. And we always have these compensatory, like each one of them can sort of uh, help in, in certain situations. So I think knowing that about your players is exactly right, especially how you how you frame it up. I think that's really important to how you frame it up to your quarterback about how to approach that, you know, rather than talking to them in terms of something that they struggle with, frame it up in something that they're very good at so that you can highlight, you know, here, here's, here's how you're doing that. And so if you know how attention works, you can absolutely manipulate your quarterback's approach to that read or to that, that play. Maybe Dub, that explains why you've had a ton of successes because you have a systemized approach that 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 um i guess allows quarterbacks to probably rely on whatever strength they have without knowing it if that makes sense it's like you're putting them in a position where whether they suck at tracking or not you know if they've got something going on they're able to take that you utilize that skill um you know from from a, a just you know an efficiency standpoint they probably just we, we talk about it in throwing mechanics, find your engine, you know, you want to find the right engine, um, meaning athletes will always find an engine. It might not be the right one. Uh, I think probably there's something to the way that you coach or approach the quarterback position where they're, they're finding the right engine for making decisions more frequently than not. Um, where when you have, you know, some of the offenses that I've been exposed to with some of the descriptors and, and ways and variations on how they move through this, well, this routes, this type of read and this routes, this type of read. And it's just a big collection of, of stuff. Um, you know, they might be good at some of it. They might be really bad at a lot of it, but I think kind of compartmentalizing the process over everything, um, probably 
you know, um, as a predictor of more success. Um, that's just a guess. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. And what you started off this this topic with is that it is somewhat limited. You know, once you get about past the age of about 15 years of age, you're not going to sort of significantly move the needle in drill work. But it is something that you can that you can sort of um, uh, expand on a little bit in pra- in a practice setting where you're forcing them to to do more of that, where you're pushing their boundaries, especially so that they can do it more consistently. But in the in the context of actual play, manipulating you know if they have tunnel vision or whatnot, manipulating your scheme and your playbook is just extremely valuable. Would there be an element also to, because we see this in training, again, you know, a lot of carryover here, you know, there's a ceiling and it's like, even though they might be able to track three objects, um, they haven't really ever worked on it in a in an environment that's, that's so it's like you almost have to force them to try to track it. Um, and they're going to find the limitation, whatever it is, but you got to go there anyway, because, you know, in the technical side of things, kids are, you know, quarterbacks are always inefficient. They're constantly working on being more efficient. And so their top end ability, it's like a 40 time, right? It's like you, you come in running a 5-1, you're never going to run a 4-4, but 4-8 is doable. So there's probably just that also that other, you got to still practice it and work on it and try it so you can get 100% out of it. Um, you know, I think that's probably something we have to keep in mind. Even if you have the Lamborghini of tracking capacity, you still got to learn how to drive it in the context of football. You know, we hear that sometimes, boy, they're not playing like they have tracking capacity. Well, I think it was even mentioned earlier. You've got to practice and and hook up this capable system to the game of football and and when to track, where to track, how to track, who to track. All of that has to be uh, configured within this, this capacity. And even if you have lower capacity you're right you want to try to get them to to use their maximum capacity as consistently and as effectively as they can and so you absolutely have to practice that now can you stretch it beyond like i think what brandon said maybe a little bit but you definitely want to get them up to uh their their peak capacity and and help them be as consistent as they can yeah i think you guys are shedding light on on the the disconnect between coaches and the methods that they use to coach quarterbacks and even their strategy uh, and, and the disconnect on just the the tools that your quarterback has and, and even knowing how to, you know, link those up to maximize, like you said, driving the Lamborghini. So I think there's a, there's a higher need here for what we're working on with, you know, building a bridge to connect, you know, our scheme and strategy, you know, identifying what the cognitive strengths and weaknesses of our quarterbacks are to, you know, together. And so I'm just thankful I, I met you guys. I wish I had met you sooner when I was playing. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, guys are yeah. doing great stuff, man. We're helping the next generation. Thanks, I mean, that's, hey, can uh, I make one comment, awesome. Brandon, real quick? Yeah. Well, th- yeah. You know, we've always talked when you talked about how can you be low at tracking and better at, at searching, we've always felt like there's going to be cognitive styles, right? And there's probably, if you look within this visual skill set we're talking about there's going to be different cognitive visual skill set styles among quarterbacks and to what you both have just said you've got to find out you got to know what those strengths are what those 
challenge areas are so that you can configure their practice. You can, might even configure your scheme, your approach, how you use them to maximize their cognitive skill set. We've had a lot of coaches figure that out that I, you know, was it uh, Dave Aranda, Coach Aranda for Baylor football said, gosh, I've been forcing guys to play my scheme now that I understand how they're cognitively wired. I actually need to adapt my scheme to fit the things that they do well so I maximize their success uh, on the field and their decision-making. I mean, even if we look at NFL quarterbacks, now it turns out high tracking capacity is pretty important for the, the elite of the elite. They, they can track superhuman level tracking, but there are some successful quarterbacks who don't track as well but to the point we made earlier, they've got great search efficiency or great perception speed. And it's it's interesting. We're about at the point now where we have enough quarterbacks in the NFL. I suspect, Brandon, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I think we're going to see that there's probably two different play styles from a visual standpoint. The, the get out and search, you know, quickly want to get out and see things and track things versus the maybe sit in the pocket and visually process really fast and be able to track a lot of moving targets. And so they're more comfortable when they can just let their brain see and process versus the quarterback that wants to get out because their strength is looking through chaos and finding and, and buying more time to, to search and scan. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a phenomenal point and, and something we are absolutely seeing in running backs. Um, I spent a long time uh, meeting with the running back coach at Tulsa, uh, who's now at Vanderbilt, um, Jaden Everett. And we were looking at patterns, looking at patterns of running backs where you think it's just, hey, you need sort of a, a cognitive profile to be a running back. But there are multiple styles, whether that's a patient back versus a just a heat seeking missile back. Um, and brought up some film of Ezekiel Elliott, who can bounce back and forth from those two modes. Um, and, and those are sort of some of the elite kind of guys. But why we think that quarterbacks are any different, I think we would be, you know, we would be naive to think that there's not different styles. Just like, you know, Dub was just alluding to, I think it's also it's a little rigid in thinking I have this scheme, I have this successful approach every quarterback that I bring in is going to have success under that, or every quarterback I, I bring in is going to fit under that. Um, I, I think that that becomes problematic. Um, now, if you've got the tools and the evaluation tools, and maybe you get S2 or something like this on quarterbacks earlier, you can identify the guys who fit your scheme, right? But if you're the standard, if you're in Dub and Will's world and you're a high school you know, offensive coordinator or quarterback coach, you don't have a choice. I mean, you get who you get. I mean, most of these kids are, are, are districted kids and there's talent. But I mean, if we're, if we're thinking that, hey, I've got my system and all these kids are going to have success in it, uh, you're going to have some kids who are going to struggle if they if they cognitively can't meet the demands of that system. Well, guys, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time. I know everybody's time is super valuable. Um, but I also know how much value there is in these kinds of discussions, especially as we conceptualize our own worlds as coaches and coordinators and scientists trying to move the needle in this. So uh, time well spent on my end, for sure. 
um, and would really look forward to two more sessions if you guys are up for it, looking at read react skills and then looking at the execution skills. Thanks for listening to the S2 Cognition podcast. If you like the content we are putting out, please subscribe with that plus sign at the top of your app, leave a review about the episode and share it with a friend. Follow us on Twitter at S2 Cognition or Instagram at S2.Cognition. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please visit our website at www.s2cognition.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to the S2 Cognition podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, signing off for now. We'll talk to you guys soon.